We've been at Cannabis Conference all week, and we're going beyond the show right now. Welcome to Episode 11 of our podcast series, where we feature the fantastic speakers who've made this show a great success. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of Cannabis Conference and Cannabis Business Times. This week, we're speaking with Guy Rocourt, co-founder, president, and chief product officer at Papa and Barclay. He was here at Cannabis Conference talking about the future of cannabis as a consumer packaged good, or a CPG. At Papa and Barclay, Guy is responsible for optimizing production practices, ensuring the company complies with rigorous testing and lab standards, and developing the product roadmap as the brand continues to expand into different areas of the cannabis marketplace. Previously, Guy designed and built manufactured infused products facilities in multiple states, making him an expert in cannabis science, tech, strategy, and production. Due to his vast experience, he's an asset to those hoping to invest in the space. He also has experience caring for patients with cannabis. We got into the whole CPG question in our conversation, recorded before Cannabis Conference began, and we also talked about where the industry is headed more broadly and what business owners can do to meet it on the road. Please enjoy my conversation with Guy Rocourt. Well, Guy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're very excited to get into some of the things that uh, will be discussed at Cannabis Conference. Uh, Of course, that sort of revolves around consumer packaged goods and the CPG acronym, which we will get into momentarily. But I figure maybe a good place to start might just be with a fairly broad scene setter regarding your background and, and Papa and Barkley. If you could sort of rewind the clock a little bit to Papa and Barkley's founding, what were some of the visions that guided that? Or what were some of the, the motivating factors that got you with regard to Papa and Barkley sort of up and running in, in that or in the early days of the company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in uh, one sentence, it would be cannabis passion. Broadly, um, I had founded a company in Colorado, a vape pen company with original, like early VC move uh, money out of New York. And those folks, you know, while, you know, decent people were not cannabis people and they didn't have what I call a green heart. And I realized that over my 20 years of advocating and working with Montel and others, that I was an advocate as well as a formulator and a maker of products. And that advocacy needed to be dealt with. And so my thing in Denver was a little bit off. And then I got to meet Adam through a friend who uh, his name is Sparky Wilson Rose. He was, you know, a champion of our industry, ended up having to do some federal time for some dispensaries that he uh, was operating and whatnot. He knew Adam from Washington and put us together. When I met Adam, at first glance, I, I looked at him and I was like, here we go again. Another person that just knows how to do fintech, but doesn't necessarily have the canvas passion. But I was mistaken because he not only had this personal story uh, around his dad, and creating this bomb product that helped his dad get out of hospice, right? And at the time, I wasn't really into topicals, but I started to look at the product and realize, oh, unlike some of the other topicals I had seen, there was real milligrams per gram in this product inadvertently because he did it doing this lipid infusion and just had some strong weed, and it worked. We started using that, and I started to see the, the, the visceral efficacy of a topical, and I was like, wow, here's something I haven't seen. And at that point, I was already in the game some 18, 19 years, right? Um, not only that, uh, you know, this is 2015. I drag Adam out to a high times in San Bernardino, old school, the way we used to do it. And back then we're just out of skillet hits, like, you know, electronic dab hits are just starting. And sure enough, 
there's Adam trying some dabs, experiencing cannabis. I'm like, okay, well, you know, this guy uses cannabis, has a passionate story. And yeah, sure, he's an older, you know, white dude, but he understands cannabis and he's ready to do this, right? We also got along very well. He appreciated my creativity and passion around cannabis. And so he wanted to like raise some money and create the, you know, create the business. I was like, you know what? I'm already in dispensaries. I know how to get us in dispensaries. I've been doing this for a while. Let's just make the product. So out of one of my old grow houses, we made the first, I'm going to call it semi-professional version of the bomb. It wasn't even, it said pop and barkley on it, but it said relief. It was in a craft paper uh, box. And so we're in market late 2015, early 2016, not getting a bunch of traction. If you can remember, old school dispensaries really didn't have a wellness center. They sold mostly flour. Vapes were kind of coming on, right? But value-added products or CPG products weren't really top of mind in, in, in traditional market dispensaries, but it was starting. So by, you know, spring of 2016, we're in market in California, whatever that means. Back then, everybody and their mother claiming they have a license. Nobody had any licenses or even hardly local authorization was the most you could get from certain communities like Ukiah and some more progressive communities. But Adam and I are fully entrenched at this point. We have this vision. He's a little reluctant to call it Papa and Barkley because it's like his dad and his dog that he gave his dad to care for his dad on the box. There's this emotional component. And I'm like, look, a name is what you make it. You have passion for this. Let's make it. Let's share that passion with people. And we went out. We did our first friends and family round. Did very well. People resonated with that passion. We got that first tranche of capital. And then we met our partner. Uh, well, we had already met our partner. But uh, our partner, John O'Connor, who's actually Adam's cousin uh, through marriage, was already living in Humboldt, said, hey, Eureka's offering, you know, some R&D licenses and some, you know, they're pre-gaming this whole thing that's about to happen. This is before Proposition 64 is even on the ballot. We're like, all right, let's go up there because we got to get out of the house. At this point, we are just breaking maybe 50, 60 grand a month in revenue in the traditional market. We're in hundreds of dispensaries at this point, but we're still working out of a house. And so we're like, okay, let's find a facility, our first facility at 4th Street in Eureka. And that's really how it all comes together. And by the time, you know, the bittersweet vote of 2016 happens, we're fully in Eureka, waiting, you know, fingers crossed for adult use, candidly. I would have foregone adult use and had Hillary. That's just me as a patriot, but um, we got adult use and we've been making that work since. Absolutely. I think that that's a good foundation uh, for, for the rest of this conversation here. I know in that, uh, in that answer, you mentioned CPG and value-added products. And just for the purposes of all sort of being on the same page here, uh, of course, with the listeners, could you maybe just define CPG and in, in the context of, of cannabis and in the session at, at the conference? Sure, absolutely. So the way we defined it when we raised and used that term value added is, uh, you know, when you think about the supply chain, you have flour, right? That base commodity that we farm and it's a commodity product, right? And then you have the value added portion where you take that commodity and you manufacture it into something awesome. That's usually a consumer packaged good, if you will. That value-added part of the supply chain is where Pop and Barclay plays. We did have a grow in the beginning because in the beginning, we're like, we don't know what the supply chain is going to be like in the legal market. Well, as soon as we started seeing farmers, we wanted to support them. So we support our local farmers in, 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 uh, in Humboldt. That's the top of the supply chain. Our value-added is manufacturing of consumer product goods, right? So once we get that input product from the farm... We value added by converting it into everything we do is solventless. So we do a direct lipid infusion. 
We do traditional shaking, mechanical separation of keef. We press that keef into rosin. We also do ice water hash. Those are our base extracts that then go into our variety of products, whether they're topicals, tinctures, edibles, uh, you know, and you know, in, on our select side, obviously we have award-winning concentrates. We just did a collab with the Canagar and I hope to continue to do that. I don't know that we get into vapes and flour. It's not exactly on the product roadmap yet, but possibly. But when I say consumer product goods, that's the value added section of the supply chain where you take a commodity from the farm, add value to it through manufacturing and IP processes, package it as a consumer good, and then sell it. Excellent. And I know... You know, you mentioned 2015, and here we are just a fast six years later, and a lot has changed in the industry, of course, and certainly a lot has changed with uh, consumer and patient knowledge of the industry. Uh, could you talk a bit about consumer response to those value-added products? Meaning, in a, lot of, in a lot of U.S. markets, you know, flower sales do tend to, to sit atop the, the list of product categories, but more and more consumers are learning about these other categories that, that might fall into the CB, CPG category. Um, could you talk a bit about how the consumer has maybe changed or adapted to the rise of, of CPG products? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's funny. You know, I want to start by saying flower is the definition of cannabis wellness. It's what got us here. Things grown in garages and made in kitchens are what made this industry. Since the first revolution in the 60s, our recent cannabis revolution, the reason why we have safe access today is because people kept growing flour. So I don't want to ever discount that. That's why it's top of the market, okay? That being said, what was missing from our traditional market was this notion of even GMP or food safe manufacturing where we could create products from cannabis medicine, from the cannabis flour that were value added. I think the response has been amazing. But unfortunately, I've had to learn the hard lesson from, you know, with the help of our marketing friends that I don't understand the consumer and the consumer does not like to do work and we have to do work for them. So I think the response has been very good. But in a lot of ways, especially when I think about the national CBD unregulated things that are happening. Yeah, they want these value added products. They want you to put a box on it. For instance, we started with ratios because I assumed that people would learn about their cannabis medicine and educate themselves. Patients always did. Those who got us here always end up having to educate, usually at the last minute, because their kid had epilepsy, or they, were, uh, they had luckily an oncology nurse that hipped them to this for their chemo or whatnot. But most consumers don't need or want to do that work. And so they want you to put sleep right on the box. They don't want to know that a one to three ratio is probably the best ratio for them to sleep. They just want to know sleep on the box. So I think the response has been actually quite good for value-added products, but there's a slippery slope there, right? Because it allows misinformation. It allows folks who want to just be elixir salesmen, if you will, to say whatever they want. We see that on the national market like crazy. And then in the California market, we now have folks that are using cannabis and are not using plant-based medicine. That hurts my heart, right? Because you know, when you think about people saying things like full spectrum distillate, it's like, no, a single source active pharmaceutical ingredient or an isolated cannabinoid I'm not saying that there's not a need for that, but that is no longer plant-based medicine, right? And so for us to have value-added products in dispensaries now that have just kind of like jumped the shark and are just putting in a single source distillate and calling it a cannabis product, well, we need to set good, better, best levels, right? But to answer your question shortly, I think the public response has been nothing short of awesome. They, they want these products. They want us to put them in nice packages. They want clean messaging. I think one thing that COVID taught us is that, yeah, 
on-pack, unaided packaging is what rules the day. Somebody needs to be able to look at yourself online, look at yourself on in the window from a curbside, look at your stuff on an iPad delivery menu, and be able to see the information they need on pack so that they buy your product, right? So the consumer is hungry for this. We just need, as an industry, to start to set our levels of good, better, best, start to de define our nomenclature around what is isolate, what is full spectrum, what is whole plant, those kinds of things. Uh, we need to do, but the consumer is ready, ready to hear our message. And more importantly, I think ready to buy our products. Yeah, which certainly makes for a very exciting time in the industry right now. I do want to sort of work my way toward GMP for businesses. But but while we're in this, this space here, that idea of identifying good, better and best and setting definitions for certain terms that are used by businesses and used by consumers, who or what, or I suppose who is the referee there? And I, I think maybe the natural answer might be pointing toward the FDA and, and certain state regulations, state by state regulations. But in terms of setting those definitions, who should we be looking to this year or in this moment? <laughs> this year, in this moment, I'm not sure. I think ultimately it should be the FDA. That's how, you know, we are like, look, I, I'm letting go of my past. Okay. I'm ready to embrace all sides of the aisle and all, all, all entities, right? So I would love for the FDA to come in and have an honest conversation, but there is still a little bit of cannabis shame, right? We are, this is not like the, the dot-com boom. Cannabis has been around and because it's been around, it has a shame on it that is akin to, you know, systemic racial bias. The words we use, everything about it has stigma. So everybody is shying away from stepping up and, and embracing and helping us regulate this, right? Moreover, internally, when you think about even California and what's happening in the BCC and all the different organizations, it's a little bit like crabs in the bucket. Crabs in a bucket is an African-American term of like, we're all crabs in a bucket. And every time somebody tries to climb out, we ourselves pull them back down, right? That's ignorant. And I think that there's infighting, whether it's between, you know, uh, some growers guild, uh, you know, the hemp association, you know, NCIA, all these we have all these wannabe organizations. None of them are properly funded. I had read a stat a few years ago that the NCIA had something like 1,500 in its bank. Meanwhile, like the police, police athletic league had 15 million, right? We are not donating to these people. They are not organized enough to be a central lobbying force to have one central voice of cannabis to come and codify nomenclature, business processes. Even when you think about things like CGMP, right? When people come into our, the, the beauty of, the, of this is we were able to back into it. And I really appreciate that. I respect it. Where our Fort Street facility, uh, across, across from our Fort Street facility, a brewery opened. Well, we were up and running from the minute we opened our doors. They took six months to get all their inspections because the inspectors know what to look for in a brewery. Our first inspectors, first of all, the first people that come, just like in Colorado, are regulatory officials that are like cops. And all they want to do is be scared, Right. It takes a while for CDPH to come in. It takes a while before, you know, they start to weigh our scales, before they understand our processes, and before we start to work together to create good businesses practices for our category. But the people that are supposed to help us with that still have some shame, still don't want, still want to do a little CYA. So when you think about LA and the DCR, you think about what's happening at the BCC or DCC in Sacramento, those organizations are supposed to do this. But my understanding is they're not even well-staffed because career politicians, career government officials are not necessarily willing to jump into those departments for fear of what it might look like on their resume, right? So we got to get past all that 
and get a good regulatory body, or we as a as an as a as a community need to say it's going to be definitively NCIA or it's going to be definitively CCIA. And we are all going to contribute to that. And when they come out with their repository of nomenclature around what's good, better, best, what are these terms, what do these terms really mean? And more importantly, are they going to enforce it so that when somebody who clearly is using a dislip product says that they have a full spectrum product or all natural full spectrum product on their packaging, somebody is there to say, hey, that's not accurate. You have to make sure that you're, you know, being truthful with the consumer. So I'm sorry, I know that's a long answer, but it's a kind of a complicated uh, uh, a situation we're in right now because it is a little wild, wild west when it comes to that kind of like, we are regulated by the regulators, but we're not regulated in that we're not having honest conversations that are moving the industry forward. There's still a little too much bias and, kind of old school muck, I think. Yeah, and I think it's, it's very important to, to recognize that, that the nuance and the complexity right now, you know, looking ahead to the, the near term or even the long term future, I suppose, in a world where there are more formal regulations in place and there are more uh, referees, so to speak, and agreed upon definitions, I realize this is a bit of conjecture, but what are some ways that businesses can sort of prepare for that kind of future. And, and the reason I ask that is because GMP did come up earlier in one of your answers. And I wonder if, if, if that offers a bridge to the future and if businesses should really start looking at a GMP certification as a, as a path forward. 100%, 100%. So the first thing that, that mitigates it is like, yeah, that, that adopting. So what businesses can do is just be true in science, right? If you want to create a product that is, let's say, isolate based, well, call it an isolate or don't say anything, but it's not full spectrum, right? You just know it's not. Now, if it's CO2 or BHO crude and you have the terpenes in there and you have maybe some other plant fats, maybe that's full spectrum. And then whole plant, obviously, you should have some chlorophyll and some other phytonutrients because you're using allegedly the whole plant. So sticking to science and being truthful in your practice and messaging, well, you can't go wrong with that. As it leads to GMP, it's like, look, I grew in, a, in houses. I understand what it is to do what is necessary to provide safe access. And I don't regret that. And I don't begrudge people in other communities right now that don't have regulation that are probably still growing in a garage or growing in a warehouse that might not be the most, you know, clean or GMP like thing, but they're doing what they have to do to provide safe access. But now that we do have regulations and now that we are open and I, I just purchased this huge, awesome old Kmart you know, a blight on, you know, these box stores are a blight in America going empty. We, we bought one, we're rehabbing it and we're going to make it a CGMP uh, facility for cannabis. Why? Because we provide an over-the-counter drug. No matter how you cut it, we're putting things in people's mouths, right? We're providing medicine. And the reason why GMP is a concept is good manufacturing practices prevent you from making mistakes that might cause serious public harm. And while I believe cannabis is 100% non-toxic, it's not the cannabis I'm worried about. It's some of my other excipients. It's, you know, my employee didn't wash their hands. Never mind people getting hurt. Never mind the chain of custody in case something does go wrong so I can backtrace. So these learnings from, you know, other OTC providers are, are, should not be wasted. We should embrace them and we should go after them because they prevent far more than just, you know, consistent products. They prevent catastrophic failure in case something went wrong something you, you don't know when an accident is going to happen you don't know when a machine is accidentally you know putting in stainless steel filings into a product you know or some of the other things that have happened in the past that have led us to maintain 
and look at products uh, and look at manufacturing products in a very rigid way. Trust me, some of my feelings are like, you know, sometimes when I think about the things that you have to do to be GMP, I'm just like, come on. But I realize that those things are in place because the inevitable what if is a matter of time. It's like motorcycle riding. It's not, are you going to get into an accident? It's how many hours on a road. I've wrecked two bikes and now my wife is like, you're never getting a bike again, right? Because I've exhausted my number of hours and it was only a matter of time. You manufacture enough units and eventually something might go wrong. And that's why you're constantly inspecting, re-inspecting, giving enough room, giving enough time, cleaning, re-cleaning, and all the little SOPs and protocols that involve with GMP are all designed to mitigate the inevitable of something going wrong. And when you're at scale, the way I want to be, providing safe access to the entire nation, you just can't take those risks. Absolutely. Um, you know, I know we started this conversation sort of looking into the, the recent past uh, and the, the origins of Papa and Barclay, specifically around uh, topicals. Um, looking ahead, or even in, in the present day, uh, and of course, Papa and Barclay develops uh, many more products than simply topicals. What are some of the, the CPG maybe trends that, that you're keeping an eye on in terms of product categories that are really driving sales from consumers or even new product categories that, that haven't even really made a splash yet? I don't know if there are certain types of, of CPGs in the cannabis space that are really exciting to you and the Papa and Barkley team. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it's one that I think we're wrestling with. So first, let me start by saying, I think there's still a lot of folks that are trying to understand how the cannabis category is going to play out. And broadly, some, some of the, I think, more amateur folks just want to broadly separate it into wellness uh, v. recreational or medicinal v. recreational. I think that's inaccurate. I think all cannabis is wellness. So let me say that forward, including flower, because that's how we got here. Um, but more broadly, I think that cannabis is the category and there are different modalities and ways of taking cannabis. So when you look at our sleep suite, we have capsules, we have tinctures. I, I thought about doing a bomb like the Badger bomb and that might still come out, but we do gummies and we do chocolate, right? So here you, are, here you have a variety of what we might normally call separate categories, topicals, capsules, right? Tinctures, edibles, chocolate is another kind of edible, right? But they're not really different categories to me. I think there's cannabis and there's ways of taking cannabis. And I think the need state thing is a real thing, right? So I think what's going to happen in the future is people, product makers like us, will release products based on lifestyle indications, but they will have a broad variety of way of doing it, right? So if we come out with an anxiety suite, it's not going to be an anxiety gummy or an anxiety chocolate. And obviously we won't say anxiety, we'll say calm or something, whatever the legal folks let us do, right? But it'll be all of them. It'll be capsules. It'll be a tincture. It'll likely be a, like a temple bomb or a roll-on. It'll be, you know, uh, you know, capsules, tinctures, gummies, all of it, right? Uh, and with anxiety, maybe even a vape pen, right? Because I know that's what a lot of folks that I know who have anxiety, whenever it starts to set on, they just need to take a few quiet, discreet puffs on their vape pen. Uh, that's something I learned in Colorado. It's a, a very interesting category for that. But like, yeah, so I, I think that from a category perspective, cannabis is the category, but it, there's many ways of taking cannabis. And I think that all of them are going to be like, if you're looking at one, you're looking at all of them. Like, I don't think that a company should start thinking of itself as strictly an edible company. Now, that's my perspective, because I think Pop and Barkley is an anchor tenant that kind of like Nike can be in all sports. Yeah, maybe as we mature, there will be very like boutique companies that say, hey, no, we only make edibles. 
or we are the premier tincture maker. But the industry is, you know, we have to always reflect that it is a immature industry. And so right now, I think just like you have states that are vertically integrated and do it all, I think most big cannabis companies should be looking at trying to solve problems for folks and meet consumers where they are with a broad set of products so that however they decide to take it, it's there. We talked a little earlier about this notion of need state and having on-pack messaging. Well, to me, the three primary indications that cannabis are a slam dunk for are sleep, pain, and anxiety, right? I think we, we all, you know, that's just, I think most folks would accept that as fact. That being said, I think that if you are a product maker, a CPG maker in, in cannabis right now, you want to attack those three indications primarily. And if you do, you could say, oh, I'm only going to do it with capsules. I'm only going to do it with gummies. But we're thinking more broadly than that. We're thinking, no, it's cannabis, indications or solutions that cannabis can help with, and then different modalities and ways you can take cannabis in. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I've been thinking about it. The one part, and then I think you also asked, like, what am I looking at? I am looking at this beverage thing, right? Because it's hot. But again, AOL is not around anymore. Netscape, Netscape, whatever, all the, all the fun things that we used early on are not around anymore, right? Uh, because they, they got outgrown. This beverage thing to me, I'm, a, I'm on the margin because even if we do crack the whole nano fast acting thing, I already have something that I can go and lift pints and drink. Cannabis is going to be something different. I think it's our nature, human nature, to try to put it in terms we understand and try to model it for what we've already seen. But I think we need a little creative vision as to what can be. We just recently opened a dispensary lounge. It looks nothing like a bar. It shouldn't look like a bar because we don't serve alcohol. We serve cannabis products, right? And so I'm a little, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on it, right? Then just being the green person that I am, I do have issues with carting around water weight, essentially. There's a huge carbon footprint with associated with bottling things and shipping them all over the country or even this great state of California. So I do favor if we were to get into the beverage thing, it would likely be a beverage powder. We are going to be coming out with the sugar product. I am excited about that because without any technology, totally clean, solventless and all natural, the way we do it at Pop and Barkley, you can create an infused sugar so that I have a five milligram sugar cube. So if you want to dose your tea or your coffee, it's not an issue, right? Those kinds of beverages I'm into. The bottled things that we see that are trying to look like beer and kudos to Pabst. You know, I'd love to see a little bit more from the mother company of Paps pushing cannabis forward before they just start making money off of us. But I appreciate what's happening, but I just don't know if it's the future. So I'm keeping my eye on that one. Yeah, I think that's a whole other very interesting conversation, especially as, as all of this begins to fall into place across the country, across the world, really. Uh, and, that, and that word normalization comes to mind. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how cannabis sort of makes itself its own thing. Um, and so I wanted to touch on packaging, which sometimes is an overlooked topic, but is super important in the, in the CPG world. Um, when we're talking about need states or these, the different suite of products, um, trying to take a broad question and make it a little bit more narrow. What are some, uh, what are some ways that packaging can be uh, wrong or can be done the wrong way or put, put another way? Uh, what are some of the most important things to keep in mind with, with packaging to make sure that it's, it's communicated clearly to the consumer what this is. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I understand your question, but I'm going to start off with first, what we should not be doing is forgetting mm -hmm. that there is tremendous bias 
on this industry. And so I'm not going to mention any names, but when you do things like package your goods in things that clearly look like drug paraphernalia or things that look like explosive devices, what are you saying about our industry? We are still in the fight for our lives here. And that kind of behavior, that kind of packaging, while you might think it's kitschy, bothers me a little bit. I'm just going to start there. That being said, whew, man, look, I'm a big tax and regulate like alcohol person. I'm still not sure why alcohol is not childproof. Childproofing is the first barrier that we need to conquer when we, call, when we talk about cannabis products. It's very difficult um, to have this you know, certain things be childproof. Like I think about the topicals, um, tinctures, you know, sure there's a lot of childproof bottles out there, but it is one of the things that is holding us back innovation wise. Then the amount of compliance information on pack is quite onerous. It takes solid two, sometimes three panels. When you talk about batch label, leaving less room for us, the manufacturer to put our accolades and put that on pack consumer messaging. Consumers don't look at the warnings. I know that I'm not saying they shouldn't be there. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just saying consumers are broadly not interested in, in, in the warnings. They're there. And obviously, they're aware of them, but they don't communicate why I should buy this product or why I should not buy this product. Everything has a warning. Everything has the same warning. So now I have little room to articulate the value proposition of my product. So I think that's the thing. Um, besides that, like, you know... I, that's probably the hardest one is the, is the childproofing and the lack of available space for messaging from regulators. And when folks get into the cannabis industry, it's always a shock to them how little room we have to actually put our stuff in. To me, some of that is still a little bit of shame, right? We have lows years, I dare say thousands of years of anecdotal evidence of how non-toxic cannabis is, but yet we treat it worse than cigarettes in this country. I mean, you know, honestly, it's like we need... I'm not saying the warning shouldn't be there. I just want to, again, a little bit of fairness. But right now, for us to have nice, awesome packaging that communicates clearly what we're trying to communicate to the customer is difficult, mostly because of all the regulatory copy. And then we do get into some hiccups when we find packaging. We're like, oh, but there needs to be childproof. So that, those would be my, that would be my answer there, I think. Excellent. Uh, well, I know, uh, you know there's a lot of different angles we could go down here, but... Uh... But as far as sort of after the conference, uh, where this conversation will continue, uh, what are some or what is maybe one quick thing a business can bring home uh, after a cannabis conference to maybe continue their their thought process on, on the CPG side of the industry? Maybe something they could implement or a, a new way of thinking about trends that they're watching. I would say the one thing that they should come away with is confirm your science, right? So we all have to do this together as an industry. So without a governing body, it's important that everybody understands what their processes are and what they're doing with cannabis. I would think another thing that they should take away just for me specifically is, are you creating plant-based medicine products, right? Which have difficulties. Plant-based medicine products, it's hard to stay consistent. It's hard to keep your supply. It's hard to stay clean. But are you doing that or are you doing something else? And if you're doing something else, how and why are you communicating those things? Um, like, I, I think that they would come away with what is the, the future of this industry is not set. Lots of folks want to talk like it is, like they know something. But we have to also just understand that I don't know that the race has started. This is still federally prohibited. I don't think that we're going to have a backslide. But as going on 25 year veteran, I have patience. I've seen things, I've seen excitement, I've been excited, I got excited around Proposition 19. I didn't vote for it, you know? 
Um, I got excited about what's happening in Colorado, you know, now almost going 10 years ago when I started there and even they're starting to backslide. So this is still very much a nascent industry and should be treated as such. And so I think to answer your question directly, if there's one thing that consumers take away or, or business folks take away from this conference for me is that advocacy is still a real thing. Like we still need to be clear and communicative about what we're doing and accurate so that there is no blowback. This notion of even like things like Delta-8 and unregulated cannabinoids, that is a threat to all our businesses because when something goes wrong with one of those products, we as an industry will pay. So we need to self-regulate and get misinformation out of our industry because it's up to us. I don't really believe in my heart that these regulators care about us staying. I thought that the tax dollars from Colorado and even the tax dollars created here in California would have just been like a lock. That's it. Through appropriations, we got to get this money. But politicians are still so steep in CYA that, no, they don't really care about this industry. We have to care about it. We have to continue to self-regulate and make sure that our advocacy game is strong until such time that we get real fair and balanced rules from our regulators and most importantly, deschedule or bust. Absolutely. I think those are some very important notes to keep in mind. And of course, between the conference itself, this conversation and future conversations, uh, even in the, the pages of Cannabis Business Times, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to follow along the story. And, and I'm eager to, to keep an eye on it and to certainly keep in touch with you, Guy. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the platform. It's like you can tell I'm, I'm passionate about these things, man. It's like I realize now, one, I had no intention to be an outlaw and I was. I look at myself about to be 50 with the majority of my adult life in cannabis. And like, it's, it's personal. It is personal. Mm -hmm. And I talk to a lot of folks who are coming, a lot of money people that are coming in and it's not as personal to them. And sometimes they think like I'm on one, but I'm like, I've waited patiently for this. I've dreamed. I, I look, I stay in a space of gratitude for the last 10 years. I've been living a dream. And that's a wrap on our latest episode this time, a conversation with Guy Rocourt from Papa and Barkley. I just want to take a moment to thank Guy and all of our incredible speakers who made this show such an amazing event this past week. We were here at the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas, going long on important conversations and helpful networking, all in our humble and heartfelt attempt to serve the market. It was a thrill, really, and I speak for the entire Cannabis Conference team when I say how grateful we are to the wonderful people who make this industry what it is. Our sponsors our expo hall exhibitors, our speakers, the hotel and event staff, everyone who played a role in Canvas Conference this year is deeply appreciated. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Guy, and we've got a lot more coming, including post-show conversations with the Cannabis Conference staff and plenty more opportunities to bring fantastic speakers on the mic and go beyond the show. 